Everybody give a hand to our great volunteers here. All right? Now, I need you to get in a position like you're in a vehicle. Okay? So, like you're driving a vehicle. Now, I mean like all of you together, not like... So like, so Dirk, you're going to be my driver right here. So you turn, kind of turn this way. And Kathy, you're going to be kind of right back here behind him. And, okay. All right. Uh, you can go, you can, you can ride shotgun there. There you go. <laughs> all right. Now here, here is what you all are doing. Your job is that you are a, a number one top notch firefighting team. All right? And all of God's people said, uh uh-oh, right? All right? And so you're my A1 firefighting team. And so your job is to put out fires, all right? That's what what they're going to do. But I'm going to give each of you a specific task, all right? And so, Dirk, you are my driver. Your job is to get the truck where it's supposed to go, in the right position where it's supposed to go, not to hit any other vehicles in the process and to make it there on time. Doc, you're in charge of the fire scene. You get to tell everybody else what to do. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I figured you were. All right. That's good. Kathy, you are my nozzle woman. Your job is to get the line out and to get out out to where it needs to go and get the nozzle in the right position, all right? Jim, you're my utility man. Can you do that for me? Are you sure? All right. Your job is to make sure all the kinks are out, everything's good, you don't have any kind of worry about where it is, all right? I need a hydrant man. We got a hydrant man. Your job is to attach the hose to the hydrant. need an axe man. You got me? Your job is to break down the door when you get there, all right? Your ventilation chairperson. You make sure everybody's got enough air to breathe, all right? So here's the thing, all right? Now, I've given task out. Let me ask you, all right? So, Dirk, what's your job? Driver, getting us there on time. All right? All right, job? Nozzle? Carry, what's your job? Hydrant? All right, that's not their job. Your job is to put out the fire. Right? Now, you told me your task in doing that, but if you do all your tasks, you don't get the fire out, guess what? It burns down and you fail. All right, y'all are done. You're dismissed from your fire company. <laughs> now, here's the point, all right? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be passionately devoted. In fact, we've been talking about our purpose statement here at First Baptist Church, our mission statement, if you will, and that is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we've asked this question over and over and over again, but what does it mean to be passionately devoted? And if you look on the back wall, you can see the ones that we've already talked about. We've talked about being a passionately devoted worshiper. We've talked about being a passionately devoted member. We've talked about being a passionately devoted disciple. But today I want to talk to you about the reason we're here. The job that we have as a congregation. The job that we have as individuals. And if we don't do this, then we miss the reason for our existence. Today we're going to talk about being a passionately devoted servant. Now my my guess is when I say that, you're not going to think of it like, 
I'm thinking of it. Because in general, when we hear servant, we just think today, we think of someone who takes care of somebody or helps with somebody. And that is partially true. In fact, um, we get an image almost of a, an antiquated image of, of household servants. Do you may know that one of the most popular shows on television today is on PBS? Right? Anybody watch Downton Abbey in here? Just a few of us, right? And the, part of the allure of Downton Abbey is it's this previous time. And it's, if you don't know, um, first of all, if you don't know, it's not Downtown Abbey, which is what I thought for a long time. It's Downton Abbey, and it's about a house where you have the, the earl, the people that are in, in royalty or in the line are living in the upper part of the house. In the lower part of the house, they have servants, people that take care of them. They have footmen. They have people that get them dressed. They have people that cook their meals. They, and we think of that as a servant. But in the New Testament, that's not what the term servant meant. And what's interesting is, if particularly you read the letters of Paul, over and over and over again, that's how Paul identifies himself. My name is Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in general, the reason that he uses that term is because the term meant servant, slave, and it meant this. It meant one who carries out the wishes and the task and the agenda of his master. The one that accomplishes the task the master intends for him to accomplish. So our goal, being a passionately devoted servant, is to accomplish the task that the master has given us to accomplish. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I thought we would go to the birthplace of the modern church. The birthplace of what started where we are now. Now, Jesus coming is the birthplace of our salvation. He is the one that guided us. But I thought today we would be aware of what it was like in those early days. And in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, quick question. Does anybody know what Pentecost means? It means 50. This is 50 days after Passover. Pentecost was a festival of harvest. And so when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Quick question, who is they? The apostles, the disciples of Jesus, they had seen Jesus ascend and they were gathered together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, just to kind of let you know, the, the word there, mighty rushing wind, what is used in that phrase is a phrase that, that we don't get a good sense of. We, we don't get a good idea because when I hear mighty rushing wind, I think of um, wind, right? Like you go outside and it's a little, it's a little bustling kind of day. You know, um, a couple of days ago, the wind was kind of blowing pretty good and you just went outside. You, you know, we had some nice weather in the last week, right? But it was a little windy, and that's kind of what I think. Oh, just a nice, gentle, or, or a little, maybe a little forceful breeze. The, the word here is not that. The word or the idea behind it is tornado-like wind. Hurricane-like wind. Have you ever been in a tornado? I've been in one. 
I know that many of you have been around one. I know even this community has been around a couple. Anybody ever seen images of a hurricane on TV? Trees bending? That's what's discussed here. So I want you to imagine for a minute that the, the apostles are gathered in a room. They're, they're seated around. They're, they're praying. They're waiting. Jesus had told them to wait. And as they're waiting, suddenly on the day of Pentecost, it comes. The mighty rushing wind comes. And then it tells us, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided as tongues of fire. Now, I, I want you to understand something. When this is being described, I don't know necessarily that there were literal fire elements jumping around. At the same time, the apostles had no idea how to comprehend what was happening. And they were trying to just describe in some way what was going on. And each of those divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. Now, this is significant because in the Old Testament, let me ask you just a quick Passover question. All right. How did God guide his people? Cloud and fire, right? How did God split the sea? There's wind. So what you have is in Passover, Passover was an undeniable sign that God was with his people. And so here what we have is they're sitting there and God who showed up in the Passover in wind and fire suddenly shows up in their midst. Now, I want you to also understand that the fire in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's presence. So we, we talked about it with the Passover when, when after Passover they're walking and they're being guided to the promised land and he gives them fire by night and cloud by day. But what are, are there other places where God's fire is symbolic of his presence? The burning bush. Elijah calls fire from the mountain. In fact, the Old Testament makes it very apparent that fire is representative of the presence of God. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I want to tell you that, that the staff, um, as a staff, we're reading a, a really good book called Jesus Continued by a guy named J.D. Greer. And he makes this point it just uh, when I read it it's just one of those things that clicked into place he says in the old testament the fire of God consumed whatever it touched in the new testament because of what Christ has done for us the presence of God is now lighted put on the individual believers that are a part of following Jesus the fire that consumed now strengthens. And it rested on each one of them. It goes on to say this. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we're not going to get into the whole tongue speaking today. But just know, as we've said before, that in Acts chapter 2 particularly, this is a... Um, known language that they begin to speak into because people outside begin to hear them in their own language. The point here is they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the birth of the church. Jesus tells them to wait. They wait. When they wait, the Spirit comes upon them. It gives them fire, gives them power, it gives them intensity. And in the midst of all of that, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the question becomes... For what? What's the Holy Spirit supposed to do? Now, we know from Scripture there are lots of functions of the Holy Spirit. There, there's the comforting aspect. There's the conviction aspect. There's the, the idea that it is, it is overseeing what God's plan is here on this earth. 
But in this particular case, at the birth of the church, the Spirit had a very specific purpose. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. And here it is. But you, some of you know this verse because we talk about it a lot, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is before the Holy Spirit comes, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And then it tells us why, the purpose. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the reason that the church was even formed, the purpose for us is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is desperately in need. And when you think about it, being a worshiper, being a member, being disciple, every one of those three things could happen within these walls and stay right here. Now, I believe God's called us to that. I believe God's called to be a worshiper. I think that's our primary task in life is to give glory and honor and praise to the one who created us and the one who saved us. I believe that is our primary purpose. I believe that God's called us to be a member of a local congregation. We can be accountable to one another. We can share with one another. We can be a part of doing God's work. I believe that God's called us to learn more about him, to have our lives transformed. But the purpose for that here and now is so that we can serve him in his task to take the gospel to the nations. In fact, if you look in that original study of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. What do they immediately begin to do? I hear lots of mumbling out there. What do they begin to do? They begin to speak, right? They begin to talk. And here's the thing that happens. When God challenges you, when God gets a hold of your life, when God invades you, you can do nothing but speak about it, talk about it, let people know about it. They begin to give praise. And look, if you'll notice in the original, they weren't even originally going to talk to other people. They're talking amongst themselves and people hear them and they think they're drunk. Because the Lord's just gotten a hold of their lives. And then Peter goes out and then they begin to communicate. But what's interesting is that we see the Spirit there giving them gifts that they didn't know they had. And the purpose was that people might come to know Him. It, we see Peter going out and beginning to prophesy. Now, prophesy there doesn't mean to preach about something that's going to happen a long time from now. It just means to preach about what is true, what is right, what is good. And he begins to speak about it. And what we get the sense of in the book of Acts is when the Holy Spirit comes, when the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it is taking the gospel to the nations and it's not just Peter it's not just James it's not just John it's not just the 12 apostles in fact when we look at the book of, of, of Acts there are scholars that say that the gospel spread to places faster than you could imagine because ordinary people were telling people about Jesus if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you're going to be passionately devoted to him and part of what you have to do is you have to be a servant of the cause that he's called us to do. It's not optional. Now, I know, I know, there are, I hear the excuses. People don't call them excuses, they call them reasons. Things like this, like, uh, well, <laughs> I don't have what it takes to do that. To talk to people about Jesus, I don't have what it takes to do that. And here's the truth. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we believe, I believe that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit has come to reside within you. And if the Holy Spirit comes to reside within you, the same Holy Spirit that resides within you is the same one that on that day filled the lives of the apostles and gave them the boldness and the assurance to do what they had been called to do. Now to say, I don't have what it takes, either A, identifies that you have yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and walking with Him, or B, denies the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you. If you are a follower of Christ, you have what it takes. Yes, Pastor, but but it's just not my gift. Evangelism's not my gift. First of all, if you read the spiritual list in in the New Testament, evangelism was never listed as anybody's gift. Now, there are evangelists called to give into the church, and so there may be people with a higher propensity for it. But just because you don't have the greatest evangelistic presentation does not mean you're not called to do evangelism. When Susan and I got married and started having children, there were certain chores I did not like to do and did not feel I was gifted to do. It didn't matter. I do not feel I have a personal giftedness for getting dishes in the dishwasher. Folding laundry is not one of my spiritual giftings. Do you know what I was doing yesterday? Folding clothes and putting dishes in the dishwasher. We're talking about, we're talking about love starting start next week, all right? And love is doing what you're not gifted in doing. Anybody here that's married ever done something for your spouse that you don't feel particularly gifted in doing? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? But when it comes to church, we're like, it's just not my gifting. I'm not suited there. It may not be your gift, but it is your task. Another one. Well, I just witness with my life. I let people know that I'm a Christian by how I live. And that's important, right? There's a lot of witnesses that has damage done to it because they talk about Jesus and their lives don't show any life change at all. If you're going to tell people that you've been changed, guess what? You need to have been changed. But acting like you're going to witness with just your life without words is kind of like trying to listen to this sermon right now, watching me give it. Now, how much did you get out of that? Al got a lot. Al got more out of that than he's got out of anything I've ever done. You get the point, though? It's like watching the newscast without words or the closed captioning on. They're never going to know why you're living like that. Here's another one. I just don't have time. Pastor, if you saw my schedule, you just really, I, I just don't have time. Can I tell you something? I, I don't know if you've read the New Testament or not, but Jesus was a little bit busy. Paul had some things he had to do. And the truth is that we make time for the things that are important to us. Now, let me just give you a little help here, though. Generally, you don't have to have an extracurricular evangelism plan to do evangelism. Generally, God has placed you in exactly the places you need to be in order to show people and to tell people who Jesus Christ is. Right where you are, right where you're working, right where you live. Now, let me just say this. If in your work environment, your social environment, you don't have anybody that you know that is not a believer of Jesus Christ, then you're not everywhere God intends for you to be. Because he intends for our lives to intersect at all times with people that don't know Jesus. 
And here's the last one. Telling people about Jesus makes me feel weird. Can I tell you something? It does me too. And it ought to because it is the strangest thing and the most glorious thing that has ever happened. Now, here's the thing. I understand those excuses. I'm not trying to belittle any of them. I'm not trying to make any of them seem insignificant because I understand them. I struggled at some time in my life and sometimes in my life with each and every one of those. But here's the thing. We don't have a choice. It's not an option for us. I mentioned Paul earlier and one of the most interesting passages of Scripture to me is Romans chapter 1. Part of the reasons that's interesting to me is because you read Romans chapter 1, it's like you're reading the headlines on the news today. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking to the Romans, which, by the way, I think this is absolutely interesting. Paul's whole goal in life, once he becomes a believer, once he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, he's persecuting the church, then he starts to live for the, for the glory of God. When he begins that, his whole purpose is to get to Rome. Because he thinks if he can get to Rome, he can get to the ends of the earth. And that particularly was Spain. But he's thinking, if I can get there, I can get anywhere and I can influence anybody. But what's interesting is, in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to a group of believers that are already where? This isn't a trick question. In Rome. So how did they find out about Jesus in Rome? Because Paul's not there yet. The professional minister hadn't showed up yet. The greatest missionary that ever lived hadn't been there yet, so how did they know? They knew because ordinary people had taken the gospel from where they were to Rome. People that are never really named in Scripture had seen God explode in Rome. So Paul's writing them and he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you but have been prevented. I want to be there with you. I I want to come. I, I hear what's happening. I know I want to get to Rome. Now, by the way, did Paul ever get to Rome? How did he get to Rome? In chains, right? God's plan sometimes is not our plan. But then he says this, but the reason I haven't come is I am under obligation. Both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. He says, I cannot get away from this fact that my job is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to whomever I can. Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, whoever they are. To all people. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, and he has listed and will list the reasons for our obligation. And basically he's saying, listen, I can't do anything else but tell people about Jesus. Then the reason is threefold. First of all, it's because people without Jesus are condemned to eternity in hell. What he describes there in chapter 1 is the classic place that people look to. Well, what about the person that's never heard? Paul says, listen, that God has made himself evident through creation, that God has made it evident that there is something bigger than us. And that that knowledge is enough to condemn people, but not enough to save. And so everyone that has ever existed stands accused and guilty of turning their back on God, of rejecting Him. And without Christ, people are condemned to hell. And Paul says, I can't stop making my life about telling people about Jesus. Now, that's true of your neighbor next door, and that's true of the person in West Africa who's never had access to the gospel in their lives. That whoever is there that doesn't have Christ is condemned to an eternity in hell. And I know that as Baptists and as people in general, we don't like to talk about that as much as we used to. It doesn't make it less real. And somehow we have stepped back from the realization 
of the eternal destiny of those that are without Christ. The second reason that we're under obligation is because we know the answer. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know the answer. You may not be the most eloquent evangelist that has ever existed. Neither am I. But you know the answer. We sin. We're guilty. Christ lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose again from the grave. And if you put your trust, your faith in Him, confess Him with your mouth, believe it in your heart, you shall be saved. And here's the third reason we're under obligation. We are God's plan. Paul says, I am under obligation because it's not going to get there if I don't take it. A little later in Romans it says, how shall they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if one is not sent? What does it mean to be a servant? It means to cut away all the distractions in our life that prevent us from doing what God has called us to do in his plan. And I mean that both locally and globally. I mean it here and there. We have people all around us, yes, that are in desperate need of the gospel, but we also have to support people that are taking it to the places. There are, around this time, there are about 2 billion people that are living in places that have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. And if we are God's plan, then that means that we have to do something about that. You sacrificially gave this year to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and 100% of that goes to missionaries on the field doing it. Some in places that are hostile to the gospel. You want to know how much under obligation Paul felt about getting the gospel to people? A little bit later in Romans. Which Romans is a missionary book. I don't know if you know that or not, but it's a missionary book. Some people think it's a theological book. All theology leads to mission. A little bit later, Paul says that if it were possible, he would exchange his place in the kingdom of God so that his Jewish brothers and sisters would be saved. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. That's the obligation he's under. He's saying, if it were possible, I would give up my salvation. I would spend eternity in hell if it meant my brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith would come to know Jesus. Here's what's remarkable about that, all right? How were the Jews treating Paul at this time? Badly. That's, yeah, an understatement, right? They're trying to have him killed. And Paul says, for the people that are trying to kill me, I would give up my own salvation if they would come to know Christ. Let me read you something that I mentioned in the book by J.D. Greer. He closes a chapter on this. And he closes a chapter in his book by, with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I'm just going to be honest with you. When I read this, it shook me to the core. Maybe for you it doesn't, but maybe for you it has the same effect. He says this about sharing our faith. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquent, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of this sweet love. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. 
If you really know Christ, you are like the one that has found honey. You will call others to taste its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus. You are anxious that you should find him too. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. Are you a passionately devoted servant of the plan and the purpose of our King? This whole series, we've been talking about what it means to be passionately devoted. And I want you to know that that this series came out of a time I had with the Lord that started as a sketch in a book. In fact, I took a picture of the sketch. And as I was praying and asking God about direction of where we're going as a congregation, of what's happening here at First Baptist, I, I just focused on what does it mean to be passionately devoted. And if you look, this is the, the outline for the last four weeks. And I showed this to some people in our church, and one of them asked me this question. They said, do you think to be a follower of Jesus, it is a requirement to be all four of those things? And my simple answer to that question is, yes. And my question to you is, are you? And here's what it's going to mean. And we've talked about this concept before. What it's going to mean to be a passionately devoted worshiper, member, disciple, and servant is this. It means that you're going to have to lay before the Father and say, whatever, whenever, wherever, to whomever, however. The way we've talked about it before is that you have to be willing to give him a blank check. You've got to be willing to sign your name on the dotted line and hand the rest over to him. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste the one go around we've got in this life. And I want to be willing to do whatever he asks me to do. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And maybe it's not this week. Maybe it's a week before that's really kind of impacted you. And you just need to come and pray. Maybe you need to come and just say, I'm, I'm giving you a blank check, God. Can I tell you something? If we're going to take the gospel to the nations, if we are going to be a part of accomplishing the task that God has given us, it's going to mean that some of you are going to have to change some things in your life. And that sacrifice is going to have to come. And it means, and I truly believe this, that he's going to be calling or has been calling and we haven't been responding. More men and women of faith in this comfortable Christianity of America to exchange their lives for the glory of taking the gospel to unreached places. And your job may not be that, but your job may be to support those who do and to pray that God would do it. But for some of you, you can't even imagine going around the world because you haven't gone across the street. And God's calling you right now under obligation to share the gospel with the people you work next to and that you go to ball games to and that you talk to on Monday morning. Last time for the series, I just want to tell you, don't waste your life. This is it. This is all you get. And I don't want to look back when I'm ready to pass on to glory and say, man, how much I wish. Let's pray together.